Welcome back to When Bad Things Happen to Good People, a podcast about censorship and the arts. My name is Todd Sullivan. Joining me again uh, is Peter Amon. Well, thanks for having me back. Glad to have you here. I really want to see how this book ends, so thanks for having me back. And we are talking about the book um, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Nineteen thirty-two, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, long time ago. It was. It's. Uh, I don't know the math, but uh, <laughs> it's, okay. it's up there. I was like twenty, twenty-three now, right? We're in twenty twenty-three, yeah. so that's ninety-one years. Ninety. Yeah, it's after. like we're nine years away from the one hundredth anniversary of this book. Yeah, and I mean, maybe we'll maybe we'll get this technology going in the next nine years. So yeah, we're starting on chapter eight, right? That is right. Yeah. We've got a few chapters to get through here. There's a, yeah, a bunch, a bunch more chapters. Eight, eight through 18. Which is an 11th chapter to get through. So we're going to seven. We're going to have to motor here. We'll have to talk real quick. Yep. So we got to get into it fast. That's right. Uh, chapter eight is really interesting because it gives us sort of a, a look into what John's life has been like. Yeah. I, my note on this chapter, I, I like to title them. It was, I, my title for chapter eight was John's life. Yeah. And yeah, you really, you really, it seems like he can remember really far back, like to his infancy, you know, like, it, you know, it kind of seemed like his first memories were, you know, he's one or two years old kind of thing. Right. So, you know, I'm not sure if that's part of the life on the savage reservation or if that is just, you know, maybe if you're not, you're not consuming as much information, right. Right. it's easier to retain the old stuff. That's right. But yeah, he goes, he goes really far back. Yeah. Um, you know, his first memory there is of, you know, essentially being a, a young infant in bed with his mom, uh, when, uh, a nice, uh, large man kind of barges in. Obey. Yeah. Yeah. He's wanting to get busy and she's like, not with, not with John here, not with John here. And it just gets flung into an yeah, room. Yeah. It's like locked out and, <laughs> and away we go. And that's a recurring, uh, image in his, in his memories. This happens quite a lot yeah. to the point that at one point he tries to Stab Pope. He does. He's he does stab him. He does stab him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I guess he's, he, he, he attempts and tries to kill him. Even, yeah. Perhaps because Pope does stop him, That's but true. he gets a certain amount of respect from Pope. It's like you know, you know. Yeah. Good try, kid. Well, he kind of stares him down, right? Pope stares him down with the knife still in him, <laughs> and then John starts crying because he's you know kind of subdued, I guess, by the stare down. But yeah, he he definitely uh, has enough chances to to go at him. That's for sure. And, and there's, there's many more, um, you know, men that seem to frequent the house, but we don't really catch any other names aside from Pope. Yeah. He was, he was definitely the favorite. Um, he also provided, uh, the mezcal beverage, yes. right. Yeah. That, uh, you know, that Linda described as essentially Soma, but with a terrible hang. Right. Um, which she really enjoyed because it, you know, it was as close as she could get to Soma. As she yeah. could get. And I think that probably helped make her a little closer with Pope, right. Cause he was. He was that figure that stood out in John's mind as kind of the, the focus of, you know, all the men that would have kind of passed through the, the bedroom. Yeah, in a way, like, yeah, he, rep- he represented them all to an extent. Yeah. Um, I think they also referenced, if not this chapter, then in an earlier one, that he occasionally brought uh, peyote as well. 
Yeah, I think there there was one one or two mentions of that. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, Linda was making sure that she was still continuing to like keep herself as blissfully. That's right. She, she was following the old ways or the new ways. Yeah. Uh, the brave new world ways for sure. Um, yeah, definitely. You know, I think also for her, right. You know, being trapped in that world was a bit tough to take mentally, right? Like it was, you know, kind of grating against her conditioning. And so having those, those options of, um, the drink, even with the terrible hangover, right. Yes. Preferable than, yeah. you know, cause that was her condition. Well, and wiping out the, the memory of being a mother, which is a, such a, like a terrible, terrible thing in, in the, the brave new world. Um, but there was also the fact that, and I don't remember exactly how this played out, but there was some sort of a, a rite of passage that when John was older, he basically got booted out of, he wasn't yeah. allowed to participate. Yeah. So he had some memories of being younger and being kind of excluded. It was a real Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer situation there where he couldn't play in any of the Savage games, uh, you know. And then when when he was kind of of age, I think like 15 or 16, um, you know, that's where they, they do the, you know, the transition to manhood type uh, rituals. And yeah, he was he was not allowed, even though he was kind of had been preparing for it you know, maybe in parallel, maybe not directly with the other boys, but he had been... But yeah, close enough to yeah. it that he could see what they were doing, yeah. get a he, sense of... He was ready expected. to go. Yeah. He was ready to do it. Uh, and he was excluded, but that didn't stop him. No. No. He went and did uh, the, the ritual on his own and kind of went above and beyond. <laughs> he kind of crucified himself for some yeah, reason. He explained himself up yeah. on a rock with his arms out, baking in the sun. Yeah. Like Jesus. He was trying to basically yeah. create what Jesus with, and he stayed there until like blacked out and fell off the rock. Yeah. Which, I mean, we need reminders of like why religion is maybe not a great thing. It's right. there. But it was definitely a seminal moment, uh, you know, in his life that as well as, um, there was a moment where he saw, you know, he had a crush or, you know, young love, uh, this, this girl that was the object of his fixation when he was younger. Um, I think that was kind of like 15, 16 as well. And he saw her get married, which, you know, obviously was not something he had really heard from Linda and essentially, right. She's now off the market, mm -hmm. not available to him. And he is, you know, he's really sad. He's upset about that. Right. And this marriage is forever type idea, which is very different from what he's hearing at home from Linda, who is, you know, the parade of dudes through the, through the bedroom door. Uh, and, and now all of a sudden this, you know, the, the woman that he had a crush on is, is forever out of his reach. And so that had a kind of profound impact, I think as well, mm -hmm. uh, on more the, his, his sexual sense rather mm -hmm. than the, the, his, you know, kind of manly sense. But yeah, so we, we've kind of gotten a little bit of how John is found or come to religion in a sense, right. And learned about death and love and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's all very old fashioned. It's all very sort of like what we consider all the side. Almost. Yeah. Almost, you know, archaic in some ways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The religion is sort of a mashup of, I guess, yeah. what different cultures re remember from their religions of the past. Yeah. Um, but still the ideas of like, of marriage and, you know, not fucking every guy in the neighborhood. Well, or... He also seems to include some notions on, uh, you know, like purity and, um, you know, being noble or, you know, being chaste of mind and spirit and, you know, stuff like that, where, you know, when he has impure thoughts and things, right. That's, that's something that, you know, doesn't jive with, you know, with his kind of mentality. Yeah. And part of that, there was a, a section there in the memories that we skipped over where he gets the, the book on the collected works of Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah. And so that 
he's being taught to read. That's one of his kind of saving graces with all the, you know, not being part of the games and stuff. He always took that as, well, I can read and the, the other savages can't, right? And that was the thing that he fell back on to make himself feel better about being left out of their games. But that, the, the words of Shakespeare, right? Really, you know, that, uh, that ancient kind of English, uh, nobility and, and pride and, you know, the, those kind of ways, right? Really were the, the real formation of how he came to those, those thoughts. He also has some kind of like very complicated sounding biology textbook that he could read. Right. It was like a manual for Linda's old job, right. the, the hatchery, right? It's like how to fertilize eggs or something. Like yeah, that he really didn't understand. Yeah. Those are your options growing up. Yeah. Not great. A technical manual on fertilizing an egg or Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, but all of this is basically, this is told to, to Bernard. This is how it comes out. And uh, at the end of sort of these tales, Bernard sort of asks John if he wants to come back to society. Yeah. Um, and John is very excited. Wants to bring Linda too, though. John is reluctant at first, but then agrees. Well, when, when Bernard, I think when Bernard kind of thinks about it and goes, Linda may, you know, in, in his mind, he kind of thinks Linda might be really good additional leverage, right, in his little... Battle, battle with the director then Bernard is kind of you know his, his thought goes yeah I, I need yeah. to get Linda there yeah. that's gonna that's gonna be you know way better than just John alone uh, and then once John hears that then he's kind of all on board right yeah. Linda gets to come so yeah that and that's the kind of the end of the chapter um, and then it's on to chapter 9 where now um, Lenina is uh, is gonna go for a bit of a holiday yeah <laughs> so yeah Lenina and Bernard go back to their I can't remember what they call them but it's basically their hotel their rest house yeah. uh, and she's had such a dreadful time with the savages that she takes uh, six half grams of Soma really hits it hard which zongs she out for about 18 hours which is like man like needing to sleep 18 hours through your vacation asking <laughs> yeah, you're not not having a great time <laughs> Need a vacation from your vacation. Uh, but this works out great for Bernard, who now is able to, like... He makes a little day trip. Uh, exercises plans without having Lenina along to drag him down. Yeah, he uh, he goes back to Santa Fe, uh, which is kind of where the warden is, and their their nice hotel, not just the rest house. And, yeah, he, get, he gets on the phone. He, he's got some phone tag to do there to get through to the world control. Yeah, but he does. He, like, gradually works his way up to um to the world controller and it's like i got these people i kind of want to bring them back and i wonder because they don't explain really what the conversation is i wonder how much he revealed about the connection to the director oh i'm assuming not really much yeah i would because he wanted to keep that as a surprise little ace in the sleeve but yeah no he so he gets permission uh from the world controller which is the the ultimate thing um right bernard uh I don't think he has the character or the wherewithal to try and sneak these people back. So he really wants to pursue that, that permission, which coming right from the world controller opens up all the doors. And so he's super, super satisfied with that. Well, I think too, to an extent, like if his plan, as you predicted, and it turns out to be true, is to, on some level, also use this guy to leverage against his boss who wants to send him to Iceland. You've got to sort of have all those T's crossed and I's dotted. So that the boss doesn't just make him back here on, right? Like, yeah, you've got to have everything in place. This is a society where everything works because everything fits in the right way. Well, that's right. Right. Um, 
Now, while he's taking care of, or then he heads over to the um, the the guy in charge of the the warden. The warden. Yeah. Gives him all the paperwork. All the paperwork gets dealt with, and he's allowed to take John and Linda. While this is going on, John has become so excited at the prospect of getting back to society or getting to society for the first place at all. He goes to the rest house. Yeah, but it's too quiet. It's too quiet. It's a little worried. He thinks he's been abandoned. He thinks yeah. he's been lied to. He freaks out immediately uh, and starts making really good decisions. Right? <laughs> As we all do when we freak out because we think we've been abandoned by somebody. He, like, trashes a window yeah. and breaks into the rest house and starts poking around through Leninist baggage. Yeah, just cracks the luggage open. Like, luggage no, open. no compunction there. Yeah. It just opens it up and starts messing around. And starts smelling things, yeah. draping himself in things. And what he's the gets her smelling powders on him and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then he discovers that Lenina is there in the other room. Yeah. And he goes and, you know... Not too creepily. Goes to kind of watch what she's yeah, you know, She's in her soma coma. Nothing creepy about breaking into somebody's yeah. hotel room and watching them sleep in a soma coma and, like, thinking, like, with a tune. Yeah. And this is where we kind of first see John's um, thoughts, I guess, around Lenina and how he starts to kind of battle these urges yep. versus his kind of self-imposed, you know, Shakespearean world kind of uh, notions of morality. Uh, and yeah, this is this is our first blush at the the battle that's going on within John. And it is there, there's a there's a raging there's a battle rage inside of him between his desire for his hormones versus his <laughs> upbringing, especially yeah. on Jasper, yeah. Uh, and then I think he hears uh, the helicopter arrive, yeah. and he's like, and he sneaks out, back out, yeah. and encounters Bernard, who's waiting for him. That's right. I imagine they probably had to pay for that window. You know, it's probably going on Bernard's credit card. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was probably not very expensive, though. No, probably not. But it's like it's just like you know, you you grab a bottle from the minibar, you break a window, it's going to go on your credit card. That's right. Yeah, trip, right? yeah. Probably all got charged back to the to the hatchery. <laughs> exactly. It was on the hatchery. <laughs> it was expensive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, chapter 10. Um, so now they're back. They're back. And Bernard is summoned to the hatchery uh, where he works, um, where the director is. The director's had enough. You know, uh, I'm not sure if he maybe heard some stuff about the trip or just he was pondering things while Bernard was away. But the director's had enough and he's like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to terminate him now or I'm going to, you know, kind of call him out in public, you know, in front of all the other, you know, alphas and betas, uh, you know, he picks the fertilization room because that's where all the, the most higher cast people are working uh, in greatest number to kind of publicly call out Bernard. And that's a pretty big deal, it seems. Yeah. That, like having your, your social standing attacked like this is really, because I guess, you know, between the, the alphas and the betas and the epsilons and everything else, like that, again, is your social status. And if you're called out on wherever your social status is, it's going to, in a way... Even if not technically, it's going to drop you to. You know, yeah, being being at the lower end, uh, you know, so an, like an alpha minus, or you know, being viewed in that sense, yeah. or you know, being an alpha, you know, Bernard is an alpha plus. Yeah. So you know, having that you know social view of him already because of his appearance, right, and then being chastised in public, where now people would think he's you know maybe no better than a beta or something like that, would be very detrimental to his standing. Uh, which we find out is is you know something Bernard is actually a lot more concerned about uh, than than we first thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is, in fact, though prepared for this because he's got the aces up his sleeve. He knew it was coming, and, uh, and the first thing he does is he invites Linda, yeah, to come in, yeah. Uh, Linda is Exhibit A, Exhibit A, tip of the spear to reintroduce to the director. 
Yeah. Um, you know, this is your life. Remember this lovely woman that you abandoned? And she she plays the part well, right? Yep. She comes in and, oh, my Tom McKinn, and, you know, throws herself on him and, yep. you know, and and because she's aged on the Savage Reservation, she hasn't had access yes. to whatever technology keeps everyone young and thin. She's got terrible. So she, yeah, blotchy skin, basque. Yeah. So she's kind of hideous yep. in this world, right? So, you know, there's already this kind of uh, just, you know, people are aghast and shocked uh, just yeah. at her appearance in general. And then she's throwing herself all over the director and, you know, the love, my love. And, you know, you gave me a baby, uh, kind of thing. And then a the, the, the second the, shoe drops. Yeah. yeah. And in comes John, um, who he basically just comes up to the, to the director and kneels down at him. And it's like, you know, father. Yeah. And, uh, and it's kind of the end of the chapter. Well, there was an interesting bit there where, um, he kind of lets us know that in that time, right, he car- he compared it to kind of modern cursing in, in a sense, right? So the mother type um, terminology and and um, uh, kind of wording was more serious. It was like saying kind of fuck or something more yeah. carnal kind of thing. Whereas, whereas the father side of that kind of dichotomy was less... Uh, harsh, right? It was more like saying shit or something. Okay. It was more scat. He said it was more scatological. The the mother reference, right. which is why you know the the crowd was very put put off by seeing Linda. But when John said the my father, my father, they kind of broke out into laughter because it was less less right. aggressive, less of a kind of harsh uh, swear, right? Right. In that society, which I thought was a very interesting kind of thing. But it's also a mockery of him too. Like the head of this thing has a child That's with right. this. Yeah this terrible creature that's right you know yep. and, we, and like i think like within the first couple of sentences of the next chapter we learned that he, he resigned resigned immediately yeah. right. well he runs he runs out of the room right you know like with with his hands over his ears not wanting to listen to the laughter and the my father and he's just like i can't take it and he, he runs out right his past is finally caught up, up with him yeah and and really like that's that's the last we hear of the director uh he doesn't show up and you know, anywhere else in the book, he's, he's done his, his career is over. You know, it begs the thought, um, as to kind of where he goes, right. Um, you know, being an alpha plus and being in that high position, um, but taking that shot, as we already talked about, right. To your credibility, to your, to your status within your cast. Yeah. No, what, I will, I'm curious what happens to, uh, to him, whether, uh, you know, there's some stuff that we find out later in the book as to where people may go. And I'm curious if he maybe ends up Maybe that route. Maybe it's in the sequel, Braver, Newer World. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll find out. But we don't find out in this book. Uh, so now we're at chapter eleven. Yeah. So they're they're uh, they're now kind of, I guess, introduced into the world. Yeah. Um, Linda is of no interest, really, um, being kind of that mother type figure, being hideous. You know, nobody really cares about her. Um, and she doesn't really have any interest in joining, rejoining society, right? She, she, from that encounter, uh, at the center, right? She saw how people looked at her and just kind of like, she wants to check out. So she kind of sets herself up for basically, a, a almost permanent Soma holiday. Yeah. Um, and the doctors are saying, well, you know, we can't rejuvenate her. So yeah, might as well let her kind of leaving Las Vegas herself, uh, on. Right. Yeah. Right. Like she's, she's basically, they give her like however many months to live. 
she's going to just wind down the clock uh, in a peaceful... And she has, I don't know if it mentions it in this chapter, but she ends up having some kind of rapidly uh, worsening dementia or... Um... Yeah, just that confusion kind yeah. of thing. Uh, it, and it does become kind of important uh, later on. But yeah, for now, she's kind of out of the picture. So the focus of society is is now on John, right? Everyone's fascinated with this savage man, yeah. um, you know, who has been now introduced to society. And this is doing wonders for Bernard. Yeah. He has now kind of shot to the, the top of the the social standing here. He's flying high, you know, like he he's famous now. Everyone is is after him. Um, he's the guy that brought, you know, the savage to society. Everyone's super interested in everything. And Bernard is really enjoying it. He, you know, his, his previous misgivings and, you know, his kind of thoughts of wanting to be alone or be apart from society have kind of evaporated a little bit. Like, you know, I know I kind of get the sense that Bernard does not really have any courage in his convictions here, right? He's, he's really kind of jumped right back on the whole Brave New World bandwagon. Yeah. Now that he has a little bit of rain. The first time that he's really taken advantage of these things. Like he's cozying up to women he doesn't know. He's taken Soma. He's the the talk of the town. And a lot of this was very reminiscent to me of, and it's been years since I saw it, but the, the Elephant Man, where, you know, you've got, you know, what is considered sort of the upper class society finding this savage and all being very entertained by the savagery of it all like oh look at this this strange man it's uh, it's something new and different yeah yeah you know at one point they they end up watching uh a film where the audience is watching savages you know participate in these kind of rituals that they had like the, the whipping their backs yeah. with the knotted ropes uh and everyone's laughing yeah and and john is there in this in this audience and doesn't understand doesn't understand why he's really laughing at you know this these rituals that were super important to him. The other thing we sort of learn in this chapter is that Lenina has a bit of a thing. Yes. For Jenna. Well, there's a couple things here. So one, uh, Helmholtz uh, is introduced to John. Uh, So Helmholtz, so Bernard's friend, meets John, Mm -hmm. right? And they are kind of fast friends. They get along really well, right? They both have... More so than Bernard ever really did. They both have that mentality where they're very kind of separate from society um, and kind of, you know, similar to how Bernard and Helmholtz first bonded. You know, that kind of happens with John and, and Helmholtz. So there, there's an instant friendship there. And on top of that, yeah, I don't remember it came out in an earlier chapter, but Helmholtz, it turns out he's a writer. Yes. Yeah. He works at the propaganda yeah. factory or whatever. But in his own time, he's dabbled in his own sort of non-propaganda kind of yeah he, right well he i think yeah earlier they he wanted to he has this goal of trying to write something with substance mm. essentially right so he he's looking for something more that this society definitely doesn't really offer for him and yeah that i think that brings you know him and john together rather quickly um the other thing we find out is bernard is documenting everything um, as he's taking John around and touring him around, he's writing reports to the world controller. Um, and world controller is kind of reading these reports and seems to be kind of like hunting for some, some kind of reaction or something, uh, you know, that, that he expects to see from John about, about society. 
we don't know what that is yet, but there's there's definitely a real interest. You know, the world controller is following this very closely. I mean, ultimately, he's the one who gave the order to bring John over. Right. Right. So he's he's very interested, which we just get a kind of a glimpse of through Bernard's report. Right. And his reading of those reports. I think I kind of missed that too. And now that I hear that, that's... Yeah. That is going to be important. It does. It does. It is important later on. I mean, it's it's a bit of foreshadowing, I guess. I mean, they explain it enough later on. But yeah, so getting back to to Lenina's kind of crush or in, yeah. obsession with John, right? She's just fascinated with John. And there's um, there's this one section of the book I wanted to read because it it it, it struck me as really odd what what he did the year because it it's never done elsewhere in the book that I can recall. Um, but this is, uh, Lenina is at work and she's just kind of just fantasizing about John. Um, she sighed profoundly as she refilled her syringe. John, she murmured to herself, John, then my Ford. She wondered, have I given this one its sleeping sickness injection or haven't I? She simply couldn't remember. In the end, she decided not to run the risk of letting it have a second dose and moved down the line to the next bottle. Next paragraph. Twenty-two years, eight months, and four days from that moment, a promising young Alpha Minus administrator at Mwanza Mwanza was to die of trypanosomiasis, the first case for over half a century. Yep. Sighing, Lenina went on with her work. And it was, it's such a weird tangent to suddenly go on, like, yeah. this baby is going to die. Twenty-two years from her. Her infatuation so, has led to this guy's death because right. she can't concentrate it feels like like a cutaway gag from yeah. like family guy or something yeah. yeah. it, it was quite humorous yeah right yeah. 22 years later <laughs> this guy drops dead yeah so yeah she's she's got it kind of bad yeah. john like she is she's really you know and and we don't really know how that's developed aside from you know he's kind of famous right and she is part of mm -hmm. you know bringing him back and, and she was part of that whole process of, you know, introducing him to, to society. Right. And she has a certain level of fame and notoriety because of that as well. And one of the things, you know, she's getting asked by all the guys like, oh, you know, how is he in bed? Cause this is common, you right. Know, dinner conversation, right. right. In this time, you know, and, and she, she can't honestly give an answer cause she hasn't been to bed with him yet. So she kind of, I think, is getting frustrated on that sense too, because yeah. she's constantly yeah. being asked, like, "Well, you know, how's this savage lover?" And she can't answer, right? So I think that helps develop the infatuation. Yeah, what's wrong? For, what's wrong with me? What? Yeah, well, why, why can't I get answers? It's never been a problem for me before. Yeah. Um, and so they end up going. She and John go out to a feely. Yes, which we find out a little bit more is really like a haptic porno kind of it's it's kind of all your senses right? yeah like it opens with like uh music the scent for him the aroma is sort of dragging you in and then as the film starts you sort of grab your handles and yeah you begin to get the the, the sensations it was called three weeks in a helicopter <laughs> uh, it tells the story of a black man who kidnaps a blonde beta fuss woman to just rape her for like three weeks or whatever That's it is which I mean, the, you maybe you get the feely right in your butt. Maybe there's a third pole that you don't grip with your fingers. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But she, yeah. So in yeah, in the movie, he um, John's in the theater and he's you know he grabs his haptics or whatever, and you get all the sensations, uh, you know, which they don't really address. But like that must have been a real messy theater, like <laughs> you know, like, you're getting all the sensations throughout the whole thing, and then 
at the end, her rescuers come and there's, you know, a force like, with yeah, her and her yeah, free yeah. rescuers. And, you know, like you're, if you're feeling all of that, you bring a chosen pants with you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They don't really, uh, it's not really addressed there how, uh, how messy your, uh, your theater is there, but it, it seems like it'd be a, a little bit wonky, but Bernard, or sorry, John, uh, he does not like it. Doesn't care if no. doesn't sit with his kind of moral code and comfort. He's of course very more much more interested in, in Shakespearean type stories. And again, now that I've sort of said it out loud, another reason that it could have been a black man is he's able to make that connection to Othello. Yeah, that's another kind of obsessed with Othello yeah. a little bit, right? Yeah. So that that could potentially be it. Uh, but yeah, so John is not really impressed with the film. Uh, Lenina kind of she tries to make a, a bit of a move. And he's kind of like, well, good night, and that's that. Yeah, they love that. Like, she gets out of their little helicopter or whatever, and it's like, she's like powdering her nose and getting herself all ready. And as she turns around to, like, invite him in, he's like, bye. Yeah, he's just like, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> she's like, I gotta go whip myself or something, what? right? What the fuck has happened? Um, so she's still confused about, you know, what yeah. what John wants. Um, That takes us to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is kind of the... This is the downfall of Bernard, essentially, right? So there's a party. Happening. Yeah, this is where John won't come to the party. That's right. John. John's kind of like fed up with this per, getting paraded around bullshit, and he doesn't come out of his room for the party. I mean, there's some important people there, and, you know, Bernard has been flying high on, on the fame. Arch Community Songster of Canterbury. Right. Which we find out later is a, akin to kind of like a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Disney. Um, which, you know, that's pretty high up, right? Fairly impressive stature. Speaking kind of of that, I did want to quickly note a couple more uh, Ford references that I, I hit on. One of that that came up, I think, in the first half that I didn't mention last time was the sign of the T. Yes, the sign of the T. Which yeah. replaced the cross, right. which again is brilliant because you got the Model T Ford. That's right, yeah. Uh, and it's so similar to a cross. That's right. That in my mind, I'm seeing it almost as like the e- Catholic. Easy enough to, you know, kind of replaced yes right in in society and and still have you know ancient architecture and things like that right where you just we'll just chop off the top and get yeah, exactly. these sign of the d boom you're done that's right uh, and the other one was just a quick reference to the um ywfc no y f no why yeah ywfc like the ywca or the ymca okay the Young Man's Young Woman's Christian Association, Young Woman's Ford Association. Right, yes. And it took me a little, I actually had to- I think I, I missed that one, but- I, I was sure it had Ford in it, but I was like, what is this? Because I didn't know by default what the C stood for. I had to Google it. And it, when it came up as Christian, I was like, ah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Um, Anyway, back to the party. Um. So yeah, things don't go well at the party when John refuses to show himself. Everyone's upset. They start talking, they kind of talking shit about Bernard, essentially right to his face, right? I mean, he's wandering through the crowd, trying to appease everyone, and they're just, you know, they're talking him down. The same rumors come up about the alcohol and this thing, uh, you know, when he was uh, decanted and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, the arch uh, community songster guy. You know he's 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 an important person, and he he takes this as a personal affront and kind of storms out, and and essentially Bernard's uh, fame comes to an end. I mean he's now you know all all the stuff that he was afraid of before all of this started, 
uh, about his position in society essentially comes true, right? He's worse off now than he was before because he's now had that taste of, of fame and glory and now he's even lower uh, than he was before. Well, it's one thing to be at this level just sort of all the time and sort of have people look down their nose at you, but to go up and then come back down again, that fall is something that's different than just being there by default. That's right. Well, now he's also more well-known too, mm -hmm. right? As a failure. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. Um, and he's, a, you know, at this point getting to be kind of ticked at John's friendship with Helmholtz. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's jealous. He's, yeah. he's envious, right? Um, and yeah, they kind of, uh, I think they go, is this where they go friends off here or is that a bit later on? Well, so according to Sparknotes, not a sponsor, uh, <laughs> um, um, John and Helmholtz are sort of bonding over writing right now. So yeah, John reads some of Shakespeare, uh, and reads some of Romeo and Juliet, which ends up, Helmholtz ends up finding it quite funny. Yes. Yes. Cause he doesn't, he doesn't understand the, that romantic passion, uh, cause it doesn't exist in this society. Uh, specifically what it says here is that, that anyone would make a fuss over which man a girl should have is it's mind boggling. Yeah. yeah doesn't make sense with their conditioning and so you know as much as they have these things in common and this might have been where Helmholtz shared his poem with John yeah well didn't Helmholtz was in trouble right I don't know that he was on suspension or something from his the part of his job where he, he had his students he has in all on, or maybe he was maybe he was suspended from that, and that's how he ended up at the yeah because he read Ganda place. He yeah he had read um, something to his students, and it was like you know some some rhyming lines about being alone. Yeah, you know just trying to kind of get a reaction out of his students, but he ended up getting suspended because they all ratted on him. Yeah, he was writing stuff that was taboo essentially. So yeah, he's he's definitely uh, on this wavelength of you know. Hearing some of the Shakespeare kind of resonates for Helmholtz that uh, that John's reciting, but uh, yeah, some of it is just mm -hmm. doesn't jibe with yeah. the, his conditioning. Chapter thirteen. Yeah, that's about it for chapter twelve. Chapter thirteen. So Lenin is still kind of pining away. You know, she's she's miserable over her lack of uh, progress. You know, with with John. Uh, she can't close the deal. So she's talking to Fanny again about it. And Fanny says, you know, like, I don't understand how you're obsessed over one dude, basically. But you know what? Uh, I'm I'm here to support you. You know, you need to, you know, gives her kind of the bit of the pep talk of like, give it the old college try. Go try and fuck him, you know. Yeah. Sun back some soba. Sit it. Get your nerves go on. Everything will be fine. And don't take no for an ad. Don't take it. Just go get him. Unfortunately, he was in it more than no is the answer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she says heads over to see to see John. Um he doesn't seem pleased to see her. Well, he's shocked, right? Yeah. Uh but also, like he's got all his feelings that he's struggling with. Yeah. And so he falls down to his knees, begins reciting Shakespeare to her, um, declares his love for her um which she essentially reciprocates but in her way right right so this is kind of i think confusing for him yeah because he has this sense of what love should be right from shakespeare and she has no sense of love she just has the sense of well i want to 
get with this guy because he's strange and fascinating, right? And by all means, I should be able to take him to bed. So it presents this situation where they're both on different pages. They're both in different books. Yeah, different books. In different languages. But now it's about to go down because she thinks it's on and he's kind of like, you know, wanting to go through courtship and, you know, all this kind of other stuff. And uh, she's kind of ready to go. Yeah, so she starts just taking her clothes off. Yeah. Which is quite a shock to him. Uh, and at a certain point, I think after she's taken everything off, he just freaks out. Yeah, like it's a shock to his sensibility yeah. that a woman would behave that way. Yeah. Because um, it's not anything he's ever seen. With maybe not the exception of Linda, I guess, in a sense, but he didn't really see that. But, and maybe even then, that's part of where this comes from is his, you know, he felt abandoned by Linda to some extent every time that happened, right? He was right. left alone in this little room. And that's, I think, maybe blocked off a part of the that sexual side of things for him. Because I think, I think the normal response to this would just be like, oh, oh my, please, please, I'm not, that's right. not what we get. We get him hollering strumpet and impudent strumpet. <laughs> yes. That's the, the line of the book, right? Yeah. He really, really, really hammers down on impudent strumpet. He freaks out. She has to run and hide in the bathroom. Yeah. Well, he, uh, like he actually physically yeah. pushes her, right? Yeah. Like it, it, it becomes a confrontation. He's so, he's so affronted by her promiscuity, essentially, right? That it it destroys the image he had in his head of her, right? And and that's where he he attacks her. And you know, I'm going to suggest that had he ejaculated a little bit more, <laughs> maybe that wouldn't be a problem. Maybe that all that he could have maybe played it cool. Yeah, <laughs> that would be said all that you know, built up tension that you just didn't know what to do with. That's right. <laughs> Masturbation's good for you, John. Um, <laughs> and then so she's hiding in the bathroom. He's continuing to, to rant about strumpets He's and the harlots. like pacing around the room, muttering to himself, like, you know, for from her perspective, thinking he's had, like, a psychotic yeah. break, yeah. essentially, right? That's just like, can you, can you pass me my clothes? Yeah. Because, well, he asked her to leave or something, right? And she's like, you know, can you pass me my clothes? I mean... <laughs> and then so I say, well, he can't get through the door. He's like, well, it's just past the, 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 the window above the door. So right. and he gets the clothes, and it's like, can you, can you pass me my belt? Yeah. <laughs> Just let this part And the whole, the whole time, like, he hasn't calmed down that much. No. He's still pretty in a rage. Um, and so, she, you know, she's getting dressed, and she's still wondering, like, how the heck am I going to get out of here? Uh, and then we get a little bit of a Saved by the Bell situation. Pretty he gets the phone call. Phone rings. Lenina can scamper away. Well, yeah. So he, he the phone call is uh, Linda is not well. Yeah. She's been dying. She's on her... To find the hospice care, or, you know, the hospital for the dying. So he runs out the door, and you know, Lenina waits a good a good while, and then gets to sneak out, and he's off to go visit Linda in the death hospital for chapter fourteen, the last time, pretty much. Yeah, definitely the last time definitely. because this is her final day. Yep, and I think this is where we first learn about um, death conditioning. Mm-hmm. Which is a really... It's implied at one point earlier in the book, right, that it's, you know, when they fly over the crematorium. Oh, baby. Not not that big of a deal. Right. It's just part of society. But they never really talked about how they yeah. accomplish that, which is like when children are at a certain age, they're basically allowed to just hang out. Yeah, it's like an amusement park, yeah. essentially, right? The kids come in and get to like, oh, look at this one, and they just run around, and they crawl over the dying <laughs> people, and like, you know, like little kids just running around. 
running amok in the hospital. <laughs> but the way John, or sorry, around Linda, he doesn't take it well. No, no, because again, like he's coming from a, a society where death is sort of a more, it's, you, it's, it's more important. It's more important. The, the, the dying are meant to be sort of die, die with dignity, let them have their, their silence, the family grieve. Grieving isn't something that happens in Brave New World. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I grieve. This conditioning is that death is no big deal, right? We are, the society as a whole, right? The parts of the whole are not important. Um, but yeah, John, John really has some trouble here as well in the sense that his his communication with Linda, right? When he finally kind of gets through to her, she doesn't recognize him, right? And that kind of angers him. She, uh, she when she first sees him, she calls him Poppy, right? Which mm. kind of infuriates him a little bit more. Nice. And then he actually kind of grabs her and shakes her. And for a minute, she's like, oh, John. And, you know, but then because he's kind of shaking her about, that's uh, that's about it. You know, she kind of stops breathing and uh, and it's it's all done for Linda at that point. Uh, and then he's, you know, he's in his grief and, and despair at, at what he's done and the loss of his mother. And he still has all these little kids running around. And he's like yelling at them and yeah. knocking them over and freaking out at the nurses. That's and, right. oh my God, I killed my mother. Or killed Linda. So anyway, they're they're kind of they don't really want him there, and he doesn't want to be there. So he he runs out, and that's and that's where we now get to the the real last kind of moment of the book, the last turning point. Um, he's he's leaving the the hospital, kind of coming out to I don't know, kind of some back area, I think, and he just kind of is lost in his grief, and he's kind of bumping through this crowd. And it's a crowd of deltas, and he kind of eventually looks at them all, and you know his thing where he really hates the whole twin thing and how everyone's identical, and it's really just like you know the same person repeated. You know he kind of looks up and he's in a pack of deltas, uh, and he just kind of freaks out a little bit because he he can't handle it. Yeah, there's only like out of all these people, there's only two different faces. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so kind of you know he's first of all he's he's dealing with his grief. Second of all, they start doing their soma distribution at the end of the workday for all these deltas, so they're lining up for their happy drug. Yeah, and he's just freaking out, so he uh, he kind of goes a bit nuts. He stops fucking throwing the soma out the window. Right. I think down to like a lower level, telling them like they need to stop taking it. It's not good for you. He suddenly starts to kind of start a revolution almost with these <laughs> one man who are like, "What are you doing? No, we're joining him on this revolution. <laughs> it's just him. It's just him." He's trying to start this movement and they're all like, what are you doing to our drugs? And so, you know, it's not going well. The crowd's getting riled up. So Bernard and Helmholtz get a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and they, they rush to the hospital. They kind of get there just in time. So things really start to overheat. Just in time. They probably would have gotten like caught up in it anyway, just because of their association with John, but just in time for them to also be like, well, Helmholtz gets in on it. Yeah, so like, but this, yeah, this is another kind of uh, point at the character of Bernard, mm. right? So Helmholtz immediately is like, sees what's happening, rushes into the fray, is like, yeah, it's going down. I'm going to support my friend, right? Like, let's have a good old fashioned brawl. And Bernard is just kind of paralyzed with indecision. He's like, should I help them? That'd be against the law, or he wouldn't, you know, I might get hurt, but they're my friends. And so he's just kind of, you know, can't really make a decision, yeah. right? He he kind of, in one sense, wants to help, but he, he you know, he's such a, a mousy character that doesn't have really much conviction that he's just kind of waffles until the police show up. 
And they have some cool gadgets. The police. Yeah, what did they have? They have water pistols full of anesthetic. That's right. They had a... They were actually called water pistols. Yeah, yeah. And they have uh, kind of like a fog machine. Cops type. around with super soakers. <laughs> That's right, yeah. They got the fog machine that essentially is like a cloud of Soma. Yeah. And they have this recording similar to the... Um, the orgy-porgy kind of ceremony, right, where it's just a guy with a soothing voice uh, that they put on loudspeaker trying to calm everyone down, like, hey, uh, you guys are all friends, you know, that kind of thing. And so they kind of subdue the crowd, sort everyone out, get them on their way. They arrest Helmholtz and John for fighting, and Bernard is kind of trying to slip out the back of the door. And, uh, yeah, they're kind of like, hey, you're friends with these guys, right? And he's he thinks about denying it, but he's like, no, I can't. Uh, so he's like, yeah, they're my friends. And so they take him to there. They're all kind of taken up by the police. And now we kind of get into the the denouement of the book. You know, last this, three chapters. This is the major exposition chapter. Mm-hmm. This is the this is the way the world works chapter. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I need to mention here, because I don't know if it happened before now or if it happens later than now, because I didn't make a note of it. But at a certain point in the book, they stop referring to John as John. He just becomes the savage. Or Mr. Savage. Or Mr. Savage. You know, Mr. Savage was my father, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, I think Mr. Savage is what others might call him. Yeah. But even... It's a weird term of respect. The text of the book, like, just the, the narration of the book, stops referring to him as John. Aside from the world controller, who still calls him Mr. Watson. Okay. Yeah. But yes, everyone else... I'm not even thinking about the people. I'm just thinking about the narrator, the author. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the text of the book. That's right. Uh, when you see John him. way less. Yeah. And, it, and it's a transition. There's a period where it's sometimes John and sometimes the savage. And then I know at least the last two sap chapters were nothing but the savage. Yeah. Well, and the, the the final chapter, you know, he he loses his friends, essentially. Yeah. Right. So we'll, we'll get into that. And yes, then he is just the savage. Um, but yeah, so this is where we kind of learn how society works. Yeah, this is, you know, I kind of took this chapter as the the kind of behind the curtain moment. Mm. Um, so the three, you know, amigos that got arrested at the, uh, at the factory there or at the, the hospital, they get, they get essentially brought to the principal's office, right? They, they're shown to the world controller study. Uh, and now we get a glimpse of, you know, what's really you know, kind of driving the world and, and how things really work. Um, because we, we get to peer behind, uh, Mustafa Mon's, uh, world Mm -hmm. and and kind of what's been happening in what he knows versus what everyone else. And I think it's worth noting before talking about the specifics of the world is how Mustafa Mon came to be here. Mm -hmm. Um, because he was very much like Helmholtz, um, in more so in a more so, Um, except about science. Yes. He was all science, all science, all science to the point where he pursued it too far mm-hmm. to the potential detriment of society. And much like, you know, our three amigos are about to experience, he was told, well, we can either send you to an island mm-hmm. or you can shut the fuck up and we'll like fast track you to a. Yeah, they put him in the some kind of world controllers conference or something like that, right? Kind of like management training yeah. program right. for world controllers. Yeah, and that was his decision, uh, right? That uh, Now, these these guys don't really get a decision per se, but we do find out that there's other options for people that don't necessarily fit into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a lot that we find out in this chapter about 
the inner workings of how they kind of set up this world, we find about some some experiments that they've kind of done. Yeah, because it's not like they just hit this point and then they've just they've stayed there. Yeah. They've dabbled with other things, and some of the ones I remember were like they tried making a society of just alphas. Yeah, which didn't work because you know the the, the alphas didn't want to do the epsilon work. That's right, and so they did fight each other about who did that. They also talk about how, like, the lower cast, like the Epsilons, for example, they work, like, seven and a half hours a day, but they don't have to. No. There's not actually that much work to do. And so they did an experiment to see, like, what would happen if they only worked four hours a day. That's right. Well, they yeah, go well. <laughs> the, the extra free time didn't lead to any more happiness. They just, like, fucking gobbled Soma and were miserable. Like, yeah. They were less happy. They were less happy. Time, every time. Yeah. Um, which I think, you know, that's that's one of the things that, the theme starts to emerge here of the 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 cost of happiness, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they, they mention it very clearly in here, right? That happiness has to be paid for. And the cost here, right, is, you know, losing your some of your humanity or, or your, your art or, or that freedom. kind of thing, your, your, your freedom, right? And so giving people too much freedom, right, allows them to be miserable because now they're, they're kind of reminded a little bit about how little you know, kind of soul or, you know, mm-hmm. importance they, they have in the world. So yeah, it's, it's very interesting. The experiments that he, he talks about that they, they conducted with society, because it really does point to how you really do have to have that trade-off working very well in order for things to function. Yeah. Right. You'd really do have to have kind of a, a soulless kind of populace, right? They have to have that right balance of, you know, work and drugs and sex and, you know, all these kind of things to be, you know, operate on this very um, risk-free level. Everything requires very little effort, right? Every problem has been taken away, right? So you, you're just, you're happy or contented potentially, uh, but there's no, there's no ups and downs. There's no great strife or passion or, or anything like that uh, within society anymore, right? So um, essentially everyone is kind of a, a bit of a soulless robot, right? They're very, they're, they're happy and content, right? But there's no, there's no passion in the world anymore. And so they've had to remove all art, basically all art, all literature, Shakespeare's forbidden, um, religion. Yes. Was that for the religion? Ford is, Lord is kind of a surrogate for religion in a sense. Yeah. But, and it's, but again, it's a kind of a state controlled religion that allows them to filter the information. But as far as a, a belief in God, yeah. right. And, and that aspect of religion, that's, that's very much removed. Um, in the Ford, Ford is seen as more of a founder, um, you know, yeah. and, and, and someone who had the right ideas rather than a, a deity. Um, whereas yeah, all aspects of kind of gone and religion, um, have been removed so that people have, you know, nothing to rile them up in a sense, right? You know, we've, we've seen how Christianity has, you know, come and come and gone with crusades and things like that, right? People very can get very passionate about religion. Yes, they can. So it's another another thing that needs to be removed from this society so they can function perfectly. And and Mustafa even admits that science is something that has to be curbed to a certain extent as well. That's right, yeah. That even too much science can be bad. Yeah, any anything that threatens to well, it, any science right that threatens the the natural order of things, any change could potentially be catastrophic, um, because things are so balanced. Right? Yes, so you can't be pursuing, you know, scientific discoveries in a direction that might unbalance society, which shocks Helmholtz when that comes up because I thought you know 
science was one of our most important things. Yeah. You know, Mustafa has to explain, well, it's within reason. That's right. To, right. to a certain extent, you can pursue science, but if you do any real science, that could upset the balance. He even mentioned something about how they have, you know, 10,000 patents on, you know, inventions and things, right, that could yeah. could potentially, yes. like, improve it, society, but they just, they're not going to work with yeah. how things... And then that person probably gets shipped to an island. That's right. Yep. Um, well, yeah. And, and remember any other specifics from like the back, looking back on society or, um, you know, the, I think it, it kind of starts out with, you know, Mustafa asks John if he likes society and he says no. And, you know, how Holtz and, and Bernard are a bit shocked at that. Um, you know, he, he says that, you know, there's nice things and, and that kind of thing, but it's, you know, there's, there's not much to it essentially. Right. Um, and Mustafa's, they kind of first talk a little bit about, you know, some of the feelies and music and, um, John says they're kind of empty or meaningless. Right. Um, and Mustafa's explanation is that you can't make tragedies with, without social instability, right? You need, yes. you need these, these inequalities within society, right. To, so that you can fight the good fight or, you know, be passionate or, you know, star-crossed lovers, that kind of stuff. None of that really has the possibility of existing in this society. Exactly. Yeah. So they can't have any art, you know, that's meaningful because it doesn't make sense. Have to maintain that balance. And that's that's the price they have to pay for stability. It's all this trade-off of if we give up all the, you know, the high art and the passion and that kind of thing, then we have stability, happiness, contentedness, you know, Cuban automaton yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of uh, kind of society. I have a I have a little quote here mm. about that that uh, I thought was kind of neat. So um, this is this is the world controller explaining things to John a little bit. So he says, actual happiness looks pretty squalid in comparison with the overcompensations for misery, and of course, stability isn't nearly so spectacular as instability. And being contented has none of the glamour of a good fight against misfortune, none of the picturesqueness of a struggle with temptation, or a fatal overthrow by passion or doubt. Happiness is never grand, right? Like, and that's the crux of that society is there is no craziness, right? Everything is very stable and calm and even keeled. And, you know, all of those swings of temptation and, and passion and, and, you know, love and things like that, that you know, essentially lead to, uh, sorrow and real happiness, right. Have been removed. It's also, they, they use the word infantile a lot to describe, uh, the kind of society they're in and the kind of experiences that they have, that they're very base. Yeah. You know, it's about immediate sort of gratification of your senses. So much. You never sexual interest, you know, good food or, you know, whatever. Um, and you're, you're, you're designed from, the bottle to yeah. to mesh with your status in life. Um, but you're still ultimately designed to just sort of focus on those various sort of base desires and the more complex desires that can lead to, you know, art and creativity and they have to be eliminated. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. again, the, the, the whole purpose of this world is to keep people um, keeping the wheels turning, right? They, they need them to be consuming. They need them to be, you know, happy and content to kind of keep the machine running without questioning things. Uh, and then, you know, there's another... But then it makes you question, what's the point? The yeah, point exactly. Is, yeah. We, we, we've created a society that exists just to keep the machine running. Why do we keep the machine running? Because we need to keep the machine running. 
Yeah. Now, the one thing that I think within this chapter is that they point to as to the why. So we talk about uh, the Nine Years' War, right? So it was mentioned briefly earlier in the book, and now we find out a little bit more about it. You know, the Nine Years' War was this terrible war where, you know, there's anthrax and chemical weapons and people dying all over the world. And, you know, it's implied, it's not explicit within the book, but it's implied that the war was so terrible that people were willing to do almost anything to stop that war, right? And so that that is essentially, I think, given as the crux or the answer of, you know, why would they do this, right? Why would they become this, this kind of soulless society without passion or purpose? Um, why just a machine running for its own sake mm-hmm. kind of thing? Because the alternative was terrible, terrible war without a hand. Well, this would have been written after World War One. Yes, it was after World One, World War One, but before World War Two. Yes, right. And I think you know, even in the thirties, there was probably still a little bit of, um, you know, rumor and that kind of stuff that you know there was still trouble brewing in Europe. And, um, right. So you know that I think was on people's mind that there could be yet another great war. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it was it was very interesting as as the why, right? Because you know, as 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 much as we've you know, kind of seen that this society doesn't have a soul or, you know, much humanity to it anymore. Yeah, that was never really kind of asked or answered until this point as to why would they, yeah. Yeah, why would they go down this route, right? I mean, we got a little bit of a, oh, economic collapse and war, but now we find out a little bit more that it was, yeah, it was just, it was so bad that people were willing to sacrifice, you know, all all that they had, right, in terms of, you know, passion and um you know, kind of happiness and sorrow and joy, uh, just to escape that war. So that, that's kind of that, that kind of answer, um, which, you know, is, is now this kind of theme of happiness has to be paid for, Mm -hmm. right. And, and what's the cost we find it's pretty significant in terms of what they've lost. Right. But there is an out, right. There we were, we find out about the island. Yeah. And I thought that was cause you know, when, when the island first came up, when, you know, it's first sort of hinted that Bernard might be sent to Iceland. It's this terrible thing. And that was my reaction to it. Like, I don't want to get sent to Iceland. But the Helma, or sorry, um, Mustafa manages to explain it in a way that makes it kind of appealing, mm-hmm. which is that although Bernard doesn't see that, he freaks out. Bernard freaks out. Bernard, like, fucking takes off. I'm going to my room. His character here takes another hit, right? <laughs> like, he's on his knees begging, don't send me to the island. Like, it's just not a good look. I don't know if he stays long enough to hear about, you know, the benefit of the island. No, he doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. Because he, he actually gets taken away. They they drug him in, take him out of the roof, put him to bed. Um, but the way it's explained to Helmholtz is like, you're going to go and basically hang out with others like you. Others that couldn't mesh with society. The ones who want to pursue these things that are forbidden here. Um, and Helmholtz is into it. Helmholtz is into it. He's, he's like, yeah. you know what? I'd like to go someplace with like fucky weather. Yeah, he's like, like I don't want the good life. Storms. I think they could write well in some place with really weird weather. Yeah. And he has this, he already has a tortured artist right? mentality. And Mustafa's like, you got the right idea, man. And he's like, you get it, Helm. I get it. I I get, get it too. Like, I, I can see in that situation, it's the it's the best of the options. And it, I mean, I know there's a follow-up book called The Island uh, as well. Is it actually a follow-up? And I'm not like, sure if it's, you know, the same characters, but he did write a book called The Island. So um, I, I'm, I'm wondering, because we don't, 
we don't see too much more or hear much more about the island mm-hmm. uh, within this. Or these, or, or Helmholtz, or... Yeah, so we don't really know their fate. But, you know, Bernard is, you know, going to essentially get what he wants, um, in a sense, even though he doesn't realize it. And Helmholtz is all, he's all for it. He mm-hmm. he wants this, right? He's been he's been lost in, in this society for a long time, and this, for him, is just like winning the lottery. I found it interesting, though, that there is one one point where he says, you know, if the world didn't have so many islands, we'd probably just kill you guys. But luckily, there's a bunch of islands that we can ship you off to when, yeah. you, when you don't fit into the rest of society, right? So it's kind of, again, like, as as bad as society got, it wouldn't be surprising to see them just be like, well, I guess we got to kill you now. Yeah. You know, in a way, it's, it's nice that that option is there. There's still a glimmer of right. something. Well, and the answer society that, too is... You know, they're not allowed to practice science and art and that kind of stuff, you know, within the regular Brave New World kind of society. But you got to think that these islands might be where a lot of that is happening in terms of art and science. And, you know, yeah, where, where do they get any progress from, right? They're certainly not allowed to really work on it, you know, in, in the main society, right? So these little offshoots might might provide some value in the sense that certainly continuing to progress the realm of science i could see that yeah you know being monitored and going okay that's an advancement we could maybe take and modify even art though per- perhaps right in the sense of how did they get scent organs and feely things and you know how did these come right? who's inventing new sports right you probably not uh not guys on the in the main society but again though i think if you hit somebody who you felt had that kind of potential you would give them the same kind of choice that Mustafa had, right? Do you want to go to an island and be free, or would you like to stay and invent expensive sports for us? Mm-hmm. Do you want to go to the island and write great literature, or do you want to stay here and like write some pornographic feelies for us? Like, you know, yeah, I think that option's probably there. Um, but I think, given how Helmholtz took it, uh, I think it'd be kind of soul crushing for anyone who didn't kind of go to an island of their peers, right? Maybe, you know, because they're, I mean, Mustafa made the choice to stay. He did, but we find out that he kind of, you know, personally paid a great cost mm-hmm. to do that, right? That was, it was his atonement for his kind of sins of pursuing science too much mm-hmm. that he chose to stay and have essentially no chance at happiness himself, but manage other people's happiness. That's, that's the price he paid, yeah. right? So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the fact that they get to go off to this island is actually it's a reward, right? You know, they, they actually kind of win the lottery in a sense where, you know, they don't get killed. They get to get out of the kind of oppressiveness or, you know, the society that they don't have a place in Yeah, and they get to go off to their peers. Right. So that's kind of an interesting thing to find out that they that option is there. Um, so chapter 17. Yeah. So this is a more conversation between. Yeah. And so this is where they explain a lot more of why there's not really a religion, right? Mm-hmm. They talk a lot about, you know, how, how man would naturally that out. And right? I disagree with that. Yeah, me too. I really that disagree. man that. would naturally yeah. turn to God. And I think that's definitely the loudest that I've heard 1932 in this book. Yeah. Um, but maybe, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. No. I think, I think... It was maybe also catering to the audience that would be reading this book as well to throw that in that, yes, of course, without a doubt, man would naturally turn to God, well, left to his own devices. That was most likely a prevalent thought during those times. And, you know, 
espousing something outside of that, given all the other crazy stuff happening in the book and the society, may have been a step too far at the time if he really wanted to sell the book. Maybe. I think I think there could have been some con- consideration in, in that. Maybe. Maybe. Um, but yeah, essentially, right, we we find out another kind of component here. Um, the, the VPS that had been mentioned earlier in the book and had not really been explained, we find out is called the violent passion surrogate. Yeah. Right. So this is, this is, a, an, another, not a drug per se, but something that they take to stimulate, um, the adrenal glands, right? Basically, you know, this world that is so kind of bland or so, you know, at one even timber for everyone's lives, you know, is not in apparently not naturally conducive to kind of your, your health as a person. And right. you need to have this kind of replacement for violent surges of, of passion, uh, you know, with, within the human body. Um, and so this is their workaround is rather than having a society where there's instability and things for people to get upset about or passionate about, or, you know, causes to believe in or, you know, things like that. We'll just give, we'll give them the chemical alternative. It's, it's kind of an opposite of a spa day. <laughs> yeah. You don't go away to a retreat to relax. You go away to get your adrenaline all fired up. That's right. Yeah. As a workaround to keeping, yeah. you know, people's mental health, this, uh, this kind of thing was, was invented. So, uh, and then at the end of this chapter, John kind of claims the right to, uh, you know, to not be happy, to, to have things his way. He wants art and passion and you know, hard times and good times and, and all that kind of stuff, right? And uh, we find out that he's not allowed to go to the no, no. the others, right? He's still kind of an experiment to yep. the world controller. So he is going to kind of have to put up with society for, you know, some some indefinite amount of time. Or does he? Or does he? Because in chapter 18, he just fucks off. Mm-hmm. So it, for me, this was a bit of a... It didn't track necessarily, right? That the world controller wanted him to still be part of this, you know, experiment of living with society, but still somehow he was allowed to go off to some uninhabited kind of lighthouse to live out his days, right? It, you know, it it doesn't seem like that's going to really give the world controller much kind of data around this experiment. Uh, but we do we do find that his solitude doesn't last all that long. Yeah, and I, I've sort of got like two thoughts about that. And my first thought is maybe he, like nobody was expecting him to just bolt. Because um, basically it sounds like he just sort of one day went and bought all the supplies he needed and like just took off into the wilderness, yeah. found a nice place to hang out for a while. Um, and then other things happened. Or just letting him do whatever was part of the continued experiment. Just to see. How- we don't know how if he was like continued to be monitored. Because this last chapter is entirely from John's perspective. Yeah. Um, so it could just be a matter of like, how does this guy react to continued involvement in, in this society? Does he integrate with it? Does he abandon it? What happens when he abandons it? Yeah, I can see that. Um, and what ends up happening is, you know, he wants to just sort of live this, this quiet life out kind of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, kind of more a penitent life, though. I mean, he's he's... Yeah, he's back to whipping himself. Yeah, he's trying to punish himself a little bit, right? He doesn't feel like, you know, he feels like he's kind of messed up yeah. and he needs to atone a little bit, whether it's for his attack on, on Lenina or his impure thoughts or, you know, whatever he's been struggling with, essentially, right, in terms of coming to terms with, 
you know, not fitting in in the savage reservation, not fitting in in this society. Um, you know, he's he he's trying to be hard on himself. And so he's, you know, that's partly the reason for his isolation. He also, you know, he hates the uh, all the twins and, you know, he can't really just be out in society and looking at all these people all the time. He kind of throws up whenever he sees too many people that look identical to each other. So he kind of needs solitude for that reason. Um, but yeah, so he's, he's kind of living this, this simple life uh, and, and kind of self punishing life. Um, you know, he's planting, he's got plans to plant his own garden and hunt game. And so he's creates his own bow and arrow and, and he kind of gets back into the swing of things of, of more his old life. And, uh, and he's, he, he's singing to himself one day as he's kind of whittling his bow and he kind of catches himself singing and, oh, that's bad. Because now it seems he's, he's having he's a good happy time. and having a good time. And that's not the point of this little exercise efficient penance if you're singing. So he's he's caught himself kind of being a little bit happy um, as he's whittling away on his, on his bow. And uh, that kind of sets him off a little bit. Yes. <laughs> not really happy with that. Uh, so he kind of, you know, gets out the old knotted cord. Right. And starts flailing himself a little bit. And as he's doing that, there's like some people passing by. Yeah. Just he's, I guess, you know, he's isolated, but he's, he is within proximity of a little village. Yeah. There's a, there's, I think they described that there was like a little village nearby that he only had two fat flies yeah. or something. Right. Yeah. So it was tiny by and comparison. One thing I thought was interesting in this chapter, I don't know if it happened before, but they, they were described the city in regards to the number of stories it was mm-hmm. like, it doesn't sprawl out. The cities in this world sprawl up. Yeah. Because it was like a seven story tall city, I think. Yeah. Which I thought was a really inventive yeah. way of describing kind of futuristic cities. And comparatively to, you know, how you would imagine London. And, you know, I think they, they talk a little bit about some of the buildings being 60 or 70 stories earlier in the book. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, we go, okay, this is actually quite a small uh, little place. Yes. Right. Um, but yeah, very interesting in the sense that they don't do much with nature in this society, right? There's not vast stretches of, you know, agricultural land or anything like that. So really they could sprawl if they needed to, but they've chosen to, I think, structure their society in a certain way. And so they're, they're efficient in their construction and how, yep. how they live, right? Yep. Everyone lives in apartments, you know, big buildings. And, and it does technically allow John the freedom to go in like mm-hmm. find a little corner of the wilderness where he can hang out. Uh, but he gets spotted. Yeah, they see they see him whipping himself, right? Which yep. is something that is is shocking in this society, right? Self-flagellation, like self-punishment, it, it's it's almost unheard of, right? Why would you do that? Would you take Solna or you know do something else to to alleviate your problems, right? So, so word about John and his self-flagellation get out, and the media comes, of course. Oh man. Media gets involved. When you media get involved. The fucking paparazzi's here. Yeah. Literally, you know, the guy with the weird TV. That was so cool. Yeah. He, like, gets a bundle like, of the fucking, yeah, the, the microphone pops. He's got, like, a top hat, essentially, that carries all the broadcasting equipment, a microphone pops. He's got files. No, I want one of those, right? That's fucking my portable podcasting hat. This is the one thing in the book that we should actually try and we work need, on. We need a top hat with full recordings and, like, Headphones, so you can monitor yeah. yourself. It was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, instant broadcast, like instant broadcast, like an antenna pops, streaming it right back to I, yeah. from New York. It's savage. 
<laughs> um, and he doesn't he doesn't really dig that. No, no, not liking this intrusion on his private little life. No. He literally kicks the guy's ass. Yes. <laughs> literally kicks him square in the ass. Uh, so he's got, uh, you know, kind of a, a sore ass. But the word gets out. Yeah. You know, like the, unfortunately, he does not uh, kind of get peace in, in some No, way. next he is, uh, well, he doesn't actually encounter them, but he, it was a big game photographer. Yeah, like a, you know, kind of like a natural geographic type guy. Yeah, but it was clearly built around like the concept of a big game hunter. Yeah. It's just he doesn't shoot these people. He he films them. Yeah. And he, he films a feely of of john yeah well he so john meanwhile he so you know he he was upset with himself for singing um and and kind of you know whipped himself and then one day um he uh he, he i think he was gardening is what he was doing and he had an impure thought about Lennon. right and that set him off much worse than just the fact that he was happy right you know he again impudence trumpet and he flies into a rage, and so he just, not like before where he kind of calmly started whipping himself, doing it more in a kind of penance-type way. Now he's he's upset with himself. Yeah. He's literally so angry at himself for having these impure thoughts that he can't do anything else. He runs back, gets his rope, you know, is outside in plain view, whipping himself, and, and the big game hunter guy is just like, oh, yes, this is splendid, just, you know, taking it all in. Captures everything, right? And yeah, makes it into a feely that didn't even need a guy to write it. Yeah. And it gets big. It blows up. It blows up. It's, it's probably the biggest blockbuster right? <laughs> of all time in this brave new world. And this brings the crowd. This brings the crowd. Everybody wants to find, check out the savage. Um, And I don't know for sure, but... There's a, so the, Henry shows up. Henry and Lennon. Well, Lennon is not named. And this is why I'm saying I'm not sure. It's, it's Lennon. But I'm convinced that it's Lennon. I think there's enough clues around how she sheds tears for John. Yeah. And reaches out. And the fact that she's there with Henry, which is another one of the characters that she'd gone out with before. Yeah. Cause all, all the crowds kind of show up and he's, you know, he doesn't like, and he's threatening them, them with the whip, but they land their helicopter and he's kind of like, you know, he, he stops, right? So obviously, you know, it, it points to being Lennon, because uh, I don't think anyone else would have kind of yeah. taken his attention, yeah, exactly. distracted him in that way. And things don't go well. No, it's, it turns into just a fucking bonkers. So they don't really explain exactly what happens, but essentially John sees Lennon, right? Yeah. And he's not happy about it. No. He does not take it the right way. He has essentially made up his mind uh, on Lenina that she is, you know, this this strumpet, this, uh, you know, this, you know, woman who is beneath him or doesn't fit in with his, you know, kind of Shakespearean morality. And he's already in a in a kind of rage with with this crowd surrounding his lighthouse when he sees her and she's kind of, you know, trying to connect with him again. He flies into a rage. He's got the whip already in his hand. And he start takes a run at her and starts kind of beating her and beating himself. Yep. He's got one to tell one for me, one for you. And the crowd gets into it. They're already rough. The crowd is so norgy, forging. Well, they first they start out with kill it, kill yes. Right? So they're they got the mob mentality already, you know, that's already present in this society. So it doesn't take much, I think, to kind of get them going. 
and they're kill it, kill it. They 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 want to see this bloodbath. They're fascinated because they don't see kind of pain or torture or this kind of stuff very often, right? It's very new to them. Yeah, and they're they're into it, right? They're, this is a new sensation. Oh my god! Uh, and so they're kill it, kill it, feel that. And then there's that one guy who I kind of imagine as, you know, like that guy in the Rob Schneider movies is like, yeah, you can do it. Like, you know, like that's my, how I imagine it. Some guy just like, orgy porgy, you know, shouts it out while they're all chanting. And then they're kind of like, orgy porgy. Yeah. It becomes this huge orgy of violence and mayhem. And, you know, most of them are probably high on Soma. And now, as I said, they don't really explain what exactly happens, but I think it, it's kind of alluded to that Sean engages in quite a few things besides violence Yeah, in the night, right? He wakes up in kind of a Soma days a little bit the next day. Um, and he, you know, essentially we, we see him in his mind, remembers yeah. what he did. We don't know what he did, but he goes, Oh God, Oh God, Oh God, you know, like, what have I done? whether he was in the orgy or maybe he killed men. We don't really know what happened, but definitely not what he wanted to do. Uh, and certainly a whole bunch of things against his kind of code. And this is where we get to the end of the book. Yep. He, uh, yeah, there's that 11 day. <laughs> yeah. So he is really upset with, you know, kind of what happened or whatever he did. Or, you know, maybe you did a whole bunch of different things. But, uh, yeah, so it's the next night and the crowds are coming again yeah. uh, to get in on the orgy or whatever. You know, the word is spread again. There, I think they say there's a line of helicopters mm-hmm. 10 kilometers long showing up. And the first people get there. Where is he? Where is he? He's not around. They open the door and they see some feet kind of hanging. He's dangling. Dangling in the doorway. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's hung himself. Yep. He couldn't put up with... Um, you know, his own breaches of morality. He couldn't put up with, you know, this society and the soullessness and the loss of everything that, you know, was human and, and passionate and that kind of stuff. And uh, combined with his own, I think, grief about Linda, about his own actions, he uh, he ended it. And so we have a conclusion to the Mustafa Mond experiment. Feet dangling. In- and ironically, you could say that if not for his desire for those passions and for the ups and downs and for art and for Shakespeare, he never would have killed himself, right? Because it's only from having those severe ups to the severe downs that you get to that severe down that makes you gang yourself. That's right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, he, he, his was a very internal world of passion, right? Like reading Shakespeare and, and having that kind of some somewhat conditioning of the new society from Linda but growing up in that savage world where, you know, they had religion and um, morality in some sense, right? And, um, you know, more akin to to our world, that really he internalized that and, and really created his own code, mm-hmm. right? And that ultimately was, you know, when, when he was confronted with this new society, was something that he could not, he could not bear to, to be that out of sync, right? Where, you know, his set of values and, um, this kind of vapid, soulless society just did not jive. Yeah. Right? And the fact that he couldn't get away from them, it's great. He knew now, especially after that night, and then, you know, I'm not sure if he saw all the helicopters coming or, or what have you, right? But, you know, I think there was that sense of he can't get away from them, right? He tried to isolate himself. They followed him, right? Like, he, 
he couldn't escape. He couldn't escape, right? And so I think that's part of, you know, why he made the decision to, to end his life because, you know, he can't go to the island. He tries to live in solace. He can't get away. The reporters show up. They know all about, you know, it, his whipping himself and his kind of internal thoughts almost in a sense, right? And he just can't escape it. And again, in a way, he damned himself by desiring to get back to society. You know, he would have been fine if he had been left alone at the reservation. Yeah, I mean, it, it would have been maybe not a super happy life, right? But, you know, he would have been able Better to Shakespeare. experience, yeah, the unhappiness. He would have he would have had a society that makes sense, yep. right? Even though he was partially excluded from it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a, not the ending that I was expecting. Um, you know, the book seems to, I think, you know, not really have a main character per se, but ultimately we focus in on Mr. Savage on John, right? That's where we end with him hanging himself. Yeah. It, I mean, it, and we didn't really even meet John until in half chapter six. six. Practically, yeah. Um, yeah. It is interesting because, you know, we said at the you know last episode that we didn't encounter our main characters until chapter three, and then it turns out they probably weren't the main characters. And actually for a while, until the last chapter, I didn't think Lenina was coming back. She just sort of had her, you know. She had her shot. She had her shot, yeah. and then she just faded away. And, yeah. You know, it was, it, it was just... It was interesting how it went from sort of one character to another, to another, to another. And I, and I think, like we talked about this before we started recording, but I, I, if I had to pick a main character, I would say it was the society. Um, whatever that means. The brave new world. The brave new yeah, world. That is the main character. That's the title. Oh my God. Oh my God. I said what he did. I he did there. Um, what do you reckon as far as like, do you want to like rate the book on a scale of like one through 10, one to five? One through 100, what's your preferred ranking scale? Usually I think uh, it's more of a one through five. Um, I think I think in general it was, it was very um, expository at the end, mm. right? And we, we, we really did kind of wait a long time to get kind of the payoff, uh, you know, of this utopian dystopian world. Um, I think I, I'm probably going to sit it in like more of that three out of five um, cologne taps or three out of five feelings. He's sort of, you know, <laughs> something like that. You know, I, I was, I think ultimately I was quite disappointed with the character of Bernard, mm -hmm. right? I, especially in the earlier part of the book, my hope was that he would kind of have that, a bit of awakening and, yeah. you know, rise up to the challenge of how do I, you know, get out of this society and, you know, and then we kind of got a bit of that through Helmholtz, who wasn't really ever the very leader of a yeah. character. You know, and then the book shifts focus to to the savage and how he deals with the society, and you know, just kind of was a little bit all over the place. I thought really did a good job as far as uh, wrapping up the essence of the world in terms of that price for happiness kind of dialogue. Yeah, that, they that chapter was I really enjoyed. Yeah, you know, it kind of painted the the picture and cleared up a lot of stuff within the book. Uh, kind of that outside looking in kind of... How did we get yeah. here? Yeah. So that was really neat. But yeah, ultimately, I think, you know, just the the kind of lack of focus on on any one character, right? The, you know, the, the lack of satisfaction as far as a real either victory of escape, right? I know suicide in this sense is kind of John's escape, but it's not a real escape or a real... Vic pardon me, a real victorious escape. Right, from it does feel kind of Shakespearean, though. Yeah, yeah, there is that. I mean, it's been alluded to all through, you know, yeah. Yeah. But I still, I think, for me, it was 
I think maybe a bit messier than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it was definitely messy. I agree around three, three, uh, three to five, three and a half out of five. The other thing I would mention is I thought, and not to say it's badly written, but, and this is the only thing I've read by Aldous Huxley, but his structure, or the way his way of writing in this book is weirdly inconsistent. Chunky. Okay. Like, he has a lot of breaks in his sentences. Like, if it's just that, if it's just text with no dialogue, it'll be a lot of commas and a lot of, you know, asides in the middle of a single sentence. I, I, I find that tough to fault because I do that myself. Really? So, but I, I get what you mean but about even within the dialogue, there's times where it's like, you know, he'll, instead of saying like, da 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 da, he said, and that's the end of the sentence, it's da 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 da, he said, da 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 da. And even the weirdest one was you had a quote and it was something like, um, I'm just going to, this isn't a quote from the book. This is just me giving an example of what it's like, but like, I'm going to go for lunch, period. I think I'll, I think I'll have, comma, quote, he said after a few moments, comma, quote, a ham sandwich. Mm-hmm. In my mind, as a writer, if it's a sometime later, it should not be included in the same set of quotes as the previous sentence. It should now be a new, it should be a new sentence, a new quote that either opens with or ends with. He thought sometime later. Yeah, I said sometime later. There's, there's several instances of that yeah. in the book. And it's just, it, maybe it's a different in the way, the difference in the way things were written in the thirties. I mean, I feel like what I was saying earlier, right, about him kind of being a little inconsistent is that, and again, I'm not sure, uh, comparatively to some other kind of contemporary novels at the time, but it seemed like he was experimenting with a lot of different form here, right? Jack could be chapter true. three, where we had the crazy four way well, conversation that yeah. switches back and forth. Yeah. And, and some of the structures of the narrative seem to change from chapter to chapter, right? So some of the, the form that he uses, like you were mentioning in terms of that kind of midway continuation kind of thing. Um, yeah, it definitely seemed kind of experimental yeah. in a sense, right? I mean, the, the chapter where he goes to the solidarity ceremony or whatever, and like, that's a whole you know, the, the drumming and rhythms and like, oh, yeah. when we see these religious ceremonies, they're written in a totally different way. Um, and it might be that he was, you know, he found or was trying to find a way to describe a brave new world using a brave new. Yeah. Different right things format. that people hadn't maybe really done before yeah. for sure. Yeah. But it does, I think, make it a little more challenging, right? To have the form shift several times throughout the book. It's just, it's interesting. It stood out to me. And I think in, in in the way that, like, good movie editing should never be noticeable, you know, good writing should never be noticeable. You don't notice until you reflect on it afterwards and go, like, wow, that was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's my one kind of thought about it. For sure. Well, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think we should maybe get back into that for the, for the wrap-up. But, yeah, I mean, definitely worth the read. Definitely. And surprising at how it really is kind of relevant still today, mm-hmm. right? In terms of these thoughts on, you know, we have similar kind of problems in our own society in terms of the the vast disparity of, you know, people that, that suffer mm-hmm. versus, you know, people that don't. And, you know, how, how do we solve some of those problems, right? Well, until we've, until we've achieved some kind of perfect society, we're always going to be trying to. And, and this, this book gives us an example of how one could be achieved 
if we're willing to make the sacrifices that come along with yeah. it. Right. Which, you know, I don't think is is really prevalent a lot in, in a lot of kind of utopian dystopian novels of being very explicit in terms of what is the price and, and how did society agree to pay it, right? That's that's something that, that stood out to me, mm-hmm. right, when they very clearly explained, yeah, this is what happened with the Nine Years' War and we made these choices and we, we went down this path and yeah, it's maybe it's not the ideal. Maybe we've lost, you know, art and passion and, and that kind of stuff, but it, got us. it was better than the alternative, yeah. right? Yeah. All right, well, all that brings us to the end of episode 52 wow. um our second episode together yeah and uh thank you all for listening uh we, we are going to do a live episode i'm not sure when that's going to be at this point in time uh mostly because i'm behind on editing our previous episode and so i have to figure out sort of when we're releasing things and then when we're going to do the live but if you want to know when the live comes you can uh, find news about that on our facebook page which you can get to by going to our website at blah, 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 media.com. That's B-L-A-H-B-L-A-H-B-L-A-H media.com. Thanks to Facebook. Uh, links to Patreon. Links to Bias Coffee. Um, and links to the podcast itself. So check it out. Check it out. Um, any last thoughts before we move on? I think, I think we'll save it for, for later. Perfect. All right. Uh, until next time, I've been Peter Allen. I've been Todd Sullivan. Go read a fucking book. Yeah. (laughs) 